0: Welcome to The Next Mile, today's episode from AVs to Zombies. have come a long way since they were first conceived. Introduces these kinds of horseless carriages, no longer would people have to hassle and care for the animals that came along with travel. No more manure. As the idea of driving became more likable to the public and cars became more advanced, their role in society grew. In part due to the popularity, but also due to some nefarious tactics taken by the auto industry our community leaders started to shape our surroundings to adapt to our growing use of vehicles. This sounds like a good thing, right? It is a good thing for communities to advance along with the technology available. It keeps us in the present rather than in the past. But as cars gained the spotlight, other community infrastructure began to lackluster.
1: You, you know, we kind of made a mistake uh, well over a hundred years ago when the automobile came around. We were told this was safe it was economical it it was pollution free because it didn't have horse droppings and it was the greatest thing for cities and modernists in cities began to talk about a modern city had to be an auto city
0: this kind of criticism comes from years of experience samuel schwartz has been in the transportation industry since the late 1960s He started as a cabbie in New York and rose to the ranks of traffic commissioner and the DOT's chief engineer for the Big Apple. He popularized the term gridlock while pushing New Yorkers to think differently about traffic. At one point, he even toyed with the idea of banning cars altogether in certain red zones. To say the least, he knows a thing or two about traffic and transportation systems as a whole. The years have only honed his focus on how to solve the Rubik's Cube of Transportation. Specifically, with his last book, No One at the Wheel, driverless cars have become his most recent target of consternation. He tells me the way society is headed right now, as far as AVs are concerned, we might be making the same mistakes we made the first time around with cars.
1: At that time, there was a movement to try to tame the car and say, let's see if the car can live with cities, let's have speed governors on those cars but the movement to protect cities and walking and biking were pretty much destroyed by the automobile interests. And by 1930, it was all over. Every city followed suit, became a rubber city. Then post-World War II, we came the interstate system. Every program kind of the federal government was to encourage people moving, people of means moving into the suburbs, uh, building more roads to the suburbs, and soon we couldn't live without the car whereas we lived for centuries in a different way and we got around with our feet. So we made a lot of mistakes in the past. We widened roadways, narrowed sidewalks, prohibited people from walking in various areas. We destroyed transit systems. LA once had the greatest transit system in the United States destroyed. Almost every city had their transit systems destroyed because, partly conspiracy, uh, and in fact there were convictions against car companies and related companies, but also because city fathers, modernists, and others thought the car was the greatest thing. And it's part of the reason I wrote my book, No One at the Wheel. We're about to undergo the same sort of thing with a new form of automobile. We ought to be smart this time and have a more balanced approach.
0: The shifts we made early on also affected people's perception of the transit system. Shifting city focus to cars created inequality one that existed between public transit and those who could afford car ownership.
1: We have terrible transit in 90% of the United States. Uh, The transit in the United States, in most cases, is transit for poor people, people of color. And we treat it that way and offer a poor service. So you will see in lots of communities where only 10% or 15% are using public transportation, that transportation of the lowest income people with the fewest options. And they have to spend the greatest part of their day often in transportation because a bus, an ugly old polluting bus, lumbers along every 30 minutes or every hour.
0: So what happens to these communities once we introduce self-driving cars? Most futurists are wise enough not to expect that we'll fix everything in the past. But I do see some significant benefits from these vehicles. Wasted, hour-long commutes can become useful time. 40,000 fatalities reduced. Cars that can react to conditions miles, not feet, ahead. And they'll take you point A to B. No last mile solution needed. But a lot needs to happen for this push. And we stand to lose as much as we could gain. 5.5 million jobs are directly tied to driving. There are no regulations or laws or software ethics installed to determine when a car could be at fault. And lastly... Smarter cars don't necessarily equal a trafficless world. Sam and I may disagree on some of these points, but we do agree on one thing. AVs are coming and they'll bring a host of concerns. So, will our communities once again be hung out to dry? Will the already poor transit system become less of a priority for city infrastructures? Rather than bring humanity closer, the AVs run the risk of polarizing the haves and have-nots even further. As we go down this road, how do we make sure that car companies don't steer us in the same decisions that really only help them, but rather use the car for what it should do, which is connect us in a more meaningful way?
1: For one thing, there has been a bit of a change, and it's a good change, and the change is millennials are driving a lot less. They're using apps to get around. It could be Uber, it could be public transportation. They like active transportation, which means biking and walking and jogging, and even a few people uh, row boats across the Hudson River to get to work. That's a really good trend. And starting around 2003, 2004, we saw fewer miles driven in the United States, and this was prior to the recession. And I did an analysis, wrote a book, Street Smart, The Rise of City and Cities and the Fall of Cars. And what we saw was young people were driving not just 1% less, 2% less, but 20 to 25% fewer miles. Whereas my generation, late 60s, couldn't wait to get a car. That was a sign of freedom. This generation, the millennial generation, it's it's your smartphone. It'll give you all the information you need. You don't have to worry about how to get somewhere or how to get home from somewhere, that phone will, will get you there. That being said, there will be a move to try to get as many people out of some of the good habits that have been developed, like using public transportation more, walking more, biking more, inner cities having wonderful growth with lots of local stores developing and exciting streets for pedestrians, widened sidewalks, bike lanes, Bus lanes, all those good things, are at risk if we take the wrong approach. And and the working title of my book, "No One at the Wheel," was uh, autonomous vehicles: the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I do worry a lot about the ugly.
0: We're talking about the coming revolution of AVs. We'll also refer to them as driverless, self-driving, autonomous vehicles. But in many ways, we're already living some of this reality scientists have created a zero to five rubric for levels of autonomy. Most cars being developed right now have automated systems to help with certain functions. That's level two autonomy. And while it seems like the completely driverless level five is far away, companies like Waymo and Tesla are proving that this reality may not be far off. With this coming revolution, though, do you feel like, let's talk about some of the good. It's easy to focus on ugly, but we are to some extent already living somewhere in that range of the levels of of autonomy from one to, from zero to five. Right now, a lot of cars that are coming out on the roadways, newer cars from many companies that we all know have some level of partial automation, whether that's drifting out of lanes or advanced braking. How are those sort of technical elements going to help us?
1: Yeah, that that technology exists with or without autonomous vehicles. So uh, front collision warning systems with automatic braking, the Insurance Institute has uh, done some studies that said that could reduce serious injuries and crashes by more than 50% or about 50%. Lane control devices and uh, cruising and other warning systems, blind spot uh, warning systems, can also reduce crashes in double digits so we need not wait to see sharp reductions in crashes but unfortunately what we're seeing even with that technology in the United States is a sharp rise in pedestrian fatalities we haven't seen anything like this since the early days of the car we were reducing pedestrian fatalities for the longest time and reducing overall fatalities but pedestrian fatalities are on the rise some of it may be technology maybe drivers inattention, maybe walkers inattention, but part of it is also where we are buying heavier and taller cars. I recall a an emergency room physician, when I was commissioner, coming to see me and saying, we're seeing something different when people are getting hit by cars. It used to be, with sedans, that it was leg injuries. And now, with the SUVs, we're seeing chest injuries. So we're seeing far more serious injuries and more fatalities. And so we have heavier vehicles, we have technology in which we're relying on, yet we're maybe uh, not paying attention as much. Same thing uh, with walkers that are out there. And we've seen an incredible rise in pedestrian fatalities and an overall rise in all traffic fatalities. But these devices, for the most part this technology, could be very good if we use it wisely. I feel like the average layperson out there sort of takes for granted
0: uh, how transportation around us works. They they feel like this is a card that they are dealt, not an active conversation that they can be a part of. Why do you think that citizens should take a more active role and more serious role in talking about this?
1: This is common in all infrastructure. We expect to turn on the faucet and water will come out turn up the heat and we will get warmer. We expect infrastructure to be there. And we count on people in government to uh, provide that infrastructure, and we don't ask too many questions about it. The reality is the infrastructure in the United States, whether it's road infrastructure, bridge infrastructure, rail infrastructure, is in terrible shape. The American Society of Civil Engineers, I'm a civil engineer, member of the society, generally gives out grades of C minus to to D with our infrastructure. We have numerous bridges that if we don't pay attention to, if we don't do the basic maintenance, we're first gonna ban trucks and ultimately ban cars, and some of those bridges may fail. We see transit systems spending too much money on basic repair issues when had they been able and had the money in the first place to maintain the systems, They could have done it for a lot less money. So the public should take a real interest because when you allow infrastructure to fail, you pay an enormous price in so many ways. A, huge delays. You you have to drive around the closed bridge or the roadway. uh, Damages to your vehicles. But also the repair, the rehabilitation, the replacement of these structures could be as much as 10 times more expensive than just maintaining structures properly. And that means the money's coming from somewhere. Maybe it comes from schools. Maybe your taxes have to be too high because of the mistakes that we are making. Maybe it comes from police protection or social services. But there's a finite amount of money out there, and frankly, we're, we're not doing a very good job of just the very basics.
0: For a country that once made building infrastructure a productive source of pride during Roosevelt's New Deal, it's jarring to hear how far we've let things fall. In Sam's experience, he's seen other countries take more initiative in their transportation and infrastructure efforts. You know, at this point in your career with a global consultancy, do you feel like uh, countries that are just now starting to put in that infrastructure, are they ahead of the curve or behind the curve of the United States and sort of building for what this new future will look like?
1: I would say good parts of Asia, and. think including Japan and South Korea and large parts of Western Europe are doing a better job and being much more respectful of not only the infrastructure, but the planet and the impacts on people. I spoke at a conference in Brussels a couple of years ago, and I was the only speaker from the United States. I was the keynote speaker, the last speaker. And every planner and engineer doing their presentations on transportation programs, it could be in Belgium, it could be in France, it could be in England or Spain or, or Portugal. Every single one of them opened with the impacts, the impacts on pollution, the impacts on people's health, the impact on the planet. And when it came my turn to present, I presented my findings, Street Smart, The Rise of Cities and the Fall of Cars. That was my book out at the time. And at the end, uh, during the question and answer period, Someone said, what do you see as the big difference between the United States and Europe? And I thought for a moment and I said, you believe in science. In the United States, I never open with the science when I'm trying to sell a plan to some community or state or federal government. It's always the economy. We open on the impact on the economy. We open on the impact what is, what's in it for me, meaning the person that I'm speaking to. So, uh, science seems to take a a back seat here in the United States, and that's why I think parts of Asia, parts of Europe uh, are going to move ahead of us, and in some ways they're already moving ahead of us. They're not seeing the casualties rise as we're seeing the casualties rise. They're much more sensitive to the carbon footprint, to pollution, and all these things have a huge impact on our health and a huge impact on on the, our children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and I worry about that.
0: Absolutely, it seems like so much in the States is driven by what have you done for me today? And to make infrastructure a sexy topic is a is a challenge that you really need to have both community and making sure that science come to the top of the conversation, be an important part of it. And it's it just doesn't seem to happen here. And now, a word with someone who doesn't care about the future of transportation. Okay, uh, can you tell me your name?
2: Jack, name, idea or not.
0: And how old are you, Jack? Four. Can you tell me what you know about cars?
2: They go so fast because they have tires, but if they have tires, um, black, um, round things go on them, so that's called a shield.
0: Right now, when you get into a car, who's driving the car? People. Who drives you around?
2: Daddy, mommy.
0: Who's the better driver?
2: Um, uh, mommy.
0: How do mommy and daddy drive? What do we do when we get in the car?
2: Push the gas pedal and steer.
0: Who's the safer driver? Mommy. Do you think you'd ever let a computer drive for you? No. Why not?
2: Because computers don't have hands.
0: What do you mean computers don't have hands? I
2: don't see a hand on your computer.
0: What if I told you that one day soon, computers are going to drive for us?
2: Yeah, computers um, teach us the way to go also.
0: What if I told you when you drive a car... You're not going to have a steering wheel. You're just going to sit in a car and push a button, and it's going to go wherever you tell it to without you hitting a pedal or steering. Does that sound scary? Yeah. Why do you think computers are better drivers?
2: Because they um, don't crash.
0: Really? Computers don't crash? But people crash?
2: Yeah. Remember, you crashed? The person, that person didn't you know how to drive a car, and then he looked at that way, and then he student and he crashed. Yeah, and I'm very angry at that person. But Daddy, if com- if you say um computers, go past that car exact, like or or if you say computer, crash the car, you it will crash.
0: No, I think part of what's going to happen is the computers know that they should never, ever crash the car. Yeah. Won't that make monster truck races boring if the computers aren't crashing anyone? Yes. Do you want an electric car or a gas car?
2: electric car. Electric cars don't crash, they just go get like this
0: fast. What about gas cars? Are those old or new? Old. What happens if a car hits someone on a bicycle?
2: You uh, fall off and die.
0: Do you think a computer car would hit someone on a bicycle?
2: No way.
0: No way, because computers don't crash, right?
2: Yeah.
0: And then so you have an electric car with a computer in it, and you just get in and you hit a button. Does that sound like fun? Yeah. How fast do you think the cars go? A car's faster than an airplane?
2: No, airplane faster.
0: How much faster?
2: It's, it's faster?
0: What else do you know about cars that you can teach me?
2: If you put your hand under the tire, um it will squish your hand.
0: Well, Jack, this was really helpful. I learned a lot about cars.
2: Okay. I'm all done.
0: You're all done. Okay. This has been a conversation with people who don't care about the future of transportation. While my four-year-old son didn't exactly crack the code on the next generation of cars, I love talking to him for two reasons. At Beam Imagination, where we produce the Next Mile podcast, we try to radiate goodness through our storytelling work. That requires maintaining a childlike curiosity about the future. It also reminds me that we like to work with brands who are focused on making a better tomorrow for our kids. The experts on this podcast who are shaping tomorrow's transportation will hopefully get everyone, even Jack, to care about where our world is headed. And now, back to our conversation with someone who does care about the future of transportation, Sam Schwartz. So to that end, how can we sort of tell the story of how this will help people, how this will benefit people? And No One at the Wheel of You outlined that, the car of tomorrow may look very different, and it may help a family live a more normal life, where not everyone has to build their day around the availability of a vehicle. Can you talk through some of those scenarios?
1: Sure. That there's a lot of good, and and the good certainly is for those people who cannot get a license because of physical disabilities now, and either need to be chauffeured around or can't make those trips or take. The public systems for people with disabilities is usually pretty, pretty poor systems, waiting hours and uh, you know, awful vehicles when they do arrive. So imagine a, a person who can't drive because of a visual impairment. That person may very well get into a car, have a license to take an autonomous vehicle from point A to point B or C or, or D or Z or Q, whatever it is. Uh, so that, that's really wonderful for that. The way I would recommend the autonomous vehicles be rolled out is that they are multi-use, not individually owned vehicles, that they are a form of transit.
0: We talk a lot about the fragmentation of the travel landscape. With where we are right now and sort of technology coming together, we see our society going from planes, trains, and automobiles to scooters, bicycles, walking, cars, cars that are shared public transit. How will public transit and these other forms of travel, whether that's, you know, air travel, supersonic travel, how will having these different tiers be impacted by the rise of AVs or driverless vehicles?
1: Well, you're right. And in my 50 plus years of career, I have never seen such change as we've seen in this past decade. And we kicked off the de- decade with Uber and Lyft and Via and Juno Get and a whole bunch of other car services. And when those services came around, the promise was, we will improve the life of cities. We will improve traffic, reduce traffic congestion. We will take people that last mile to transit. Well, how did it turn out? Very few people came out of their cars. In New York City, 10% came out of their cars. In Denver, it was 20, 24%. In Boston, I think it was 18 percent. And in San Francisco, again, a minority came from driving. Most of it came out of public transportation, walking, other taxi services. And we saw a sharp rise in vehicle miles traveled, and congestion, particularly in the center cities. And who did it serve? People of means. Again, it didn't solve that problem that we've been struggling with, where we have that lumbering bus in the lower-income communities. They weren't there, they just weren't serving it. When bike share was rolled out in community after community, again, it was where the more well-to-do people were, and it was in the denser areas, it's understandable, there's a business model there, but taking people out of public transportation again, not taking people out of the car. So, so far with all these new modes, we haven't done a very good job of strengthening our public transportation systems. That doesn't mean that these systems, uh, we shouldn't have these systems, but sometimes I, th- I think we we have our heads on backwards. We, we're now having scooters for trips of a half mile, three quarters of a mile. Guess what? You could walk those distances in minutes. You don't need those kinds of vehicles. So we're making a a lot of mistakes. I would say the areas that will encourage the greatest amount of walking and conventional biking and good public transportation are the ones that will succeed in the future. The others will be paralyzed with all these new vehicles that are out there and with autonomous vehicles just taking over in numbers far greater than we've ever seen. Remember, many of these autonomous vehicles will not even have a passenger in them. They'll be going from destination to destination, what I call zombie vehicles. Um, here, Here I am in midtown Manhattan, Or you could be in the middle of Chicago or Boston or so many other places, and somebody comes to a meeting with me or I come to work, and I say, uh, park the car in the autonomous vehicle that drops me off at my front door. says, parking is $50. I say, go home and pick me up when I call you. And so you've got double the miles there. Just about every independent estimate on traffic congestion has said things are going to get worse unless we're smart about it.
0: Sam is concerned about the future of transportation, and for good reason. Not only do people have to show their concern, but there has to be a mutual understanding about this importance of public transit with automobile companies. My hope is definitely that our generation, the millennial generation, can help steer some of those conversations. Uh, We're in a capitalist country, and it almost feels like we've gotten to the point that for capitalism to survive... It needs to be capitalism with a conscience, that maybe it's not even governments demanding that money is put towards these transportation options, but that companies are volunteering it because they recognize that there's a benefit in them keeping communities together. And hopefully uh, we can have those conversations and build toward a better future. How does the future of car ownership work? You know, a lot of the models I've seen really start to push us in the direction of fleet-based vehicles. Do you see the average American giving up their personal vehicle?
1: I see some giving up. I would say somebody that has two cars might go down to one car. Some people have four cars. Maybe they'll give up one or two of the cars because of the greater flexibility. But we haven't seen that yet with Uber and Lyft and all the other car services. That was a promise. But car ownership has gone up. So I'm not terribly optimistic that we're going to see a big change in that type of behavior. The ideal situation is, though, that it's fleet. It's fleet operated much easier to then charge the vehicles at night. Uh, Electrically, it means that far less land. You know, when I think of uh, Atlanta, what I recall, and I've been there in a while, was downtown office building, parking facility, office building, parking facility. And it was like a checkerboard. You may not need all that parking. And that's one of the benefits we have seen from Uber and Lyft. Airports are reducing, that parking demand has gone way down. With autonomous fleet ownership, parking demand could go way down and there could be a great opportunity. But then I see car companies putting out material that just seduces people in their individually owned car. Vavo has a YouTube in which you wake up in the car, You have breakfast in the car, you do your work in the car, lunch arrives, I don't know if it arrives by drone. Uh, You then have a a conference meeting in your car, and then you have a romantic dinner in your car, and then you go sleep in your car. So I'm not as sanguine uh, about the car companies really following uh, the fleet model, which I think would be the better model.
0: The fact of the matter is, this industry isn't currently in the hands of people who will be using it once the technology is fully developed. But it's that younger generation, that more energized youth movement embodied by the likes of Greta Thunberg, that understands that transportation comfort comes at a price.
1: The millennial generation, the younger generation, you have to be concerned about 2050 because you'll be living in 2050 and 2075 and maybe your children and my grandchildren to 2100 and beyond. We're on a collision course. The planet is on a collision course. We can't keep using the same amount of energy. We can't keep emitting the same carbon footprint. We can't be so selfish that we only count on what's good for ourselves. We have to start thinking collectively what is good for our planet.
0: Thanks for joining us on The Next Mile. Over the next two episodes, we'll continue to peel back the layers of driverless technology with two different companies, ClearRoad and Too Simple. Here's a sneak peek of what's coming up we see ourselves as a technology company and so on some level we're agnostic to the particulars of the program that being said i think there is this this moment there's this crisis both on the 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 traffic side as well as the 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 financing side to really shift into this other other paradigm if you're going to do it why not do it in in a way that is fairer that enables more equity
2: similar to the, the
0: autonomous vehicle transition well if this is we can see the future there. Well, why don't we realize the best version of that? Tune in again next time as we see where this road takes us. I'm host of The Next Mile by Beam Imagination.